Imagine you go to work one day and your supervisor tells you and two other coworkers that you got to put on your uniforms so it's very clear that you're representing your employer and it takes you all in a marked work vehicle during your shift to a private party. You arrive at this party and you discover that the party's theme is to mock the emancipation of slaves. The hosts are serving fried chicken and watermelon and Hennessy in cups that say Juneteenth. There's a burlesque dancer that's walking around and pretending to be a local Democratic politician. Now imagine you're a black firefighter brought to this party by your white supervisor, and the party is hosted by a rich white couple and their friends. See any legal issues? Welcome to May It Displease the Court, a show about all the ways that our legal system does not work for us. I'm your host, Attorney Mary Whiteside. I will be joined by SUNY Geneseo Professor of Rhetoric Lee Pierce to discuss how free speech doesn't mean consequence-free speech. Today, we return to the land of Rochester, New York, because it's a community like so many others that doesn't address racist behavior until a lawsuit brings awareness to a problem and demands that officials are held accountable. Welcome, Lee. I am so thrilled to have you back on the pod. Uh, I know you're teaching lucky students at SUNY Geneseo, but what can you share with us about what you're researching? Yeah. Hey, Mary. It's good to be back. What's going on with research? Well, funny you should mention the Juneteenth party lawsuit because I actually I uh, wasn't researching it specifically, but right after it happened, a local news station reached out to campus for somebody to talk about cancel culture. Um, and then they reached, and then the school reached out to me. And of course, it's always this frenzy, right? Because they need your opinion like 10 seconds ago. And not only do, is it a lot of like texting and, and, inter- and like, oh, you have to do this right now, but you don't have any time to really form an opinion. Because if you say, oh, give me, you know, a day to really research this and listen to it, um, it's like, oh, well, then you can't be our expert. So it, it was funny because I had to basically form an opinion about it without actually having a chance to really delve into the case. Um, and what I find hilarious is that the journalist interviewing me really kept pushing for me to denounce cancel culture. I mean, like really implicitly, I don't even know if they knew they were doing it because, um, but you could kind of tell they wanted me to say like, is cancel culture good or bad? And I, that's not, you know, kind of like what I do um, because I'm a rhetorician and, we, and we're, I'm, we're more about like, how is the way we talk about things influencing how you think about them? I don't really decide if cancel culture is bad or good, but more like what kind of work is the phrase doing, mostly for people in power and rich people, right? Like, because that's always kind of the, the reason why these phrases get picked up is they serve dominant interests. Uh, but um, specifically right now, I'm finishing up a piece about this controversy that happened a couple years ago. Um, do you remember the Black Lives Matter website? The actual organization's website used to have a like a really long, it was about like 850 words page called What We Believe. Uh, and it was like a manifesto basically. And it was circulating around, you know, 2017, 2018, 2019. Mm-hmm. Do, do you ever remember seeing this? I did not see it. But many people at some point heard some piece of it. But anyway, there was this huge, suddenly in 2020, the summer of the protests after the George Floyd murder, um, people get all up in arms about this 
accusation that the statement wanted to abolish the nuclear family, even though that's not. Oh, yeah, I remember right, that. Right, it was huge. That. And it's it's always interesting when something happens like four years later, right? This, this statement had been out for years. And so it's like, hmm, interesting that suddenly that summer, right, the same summer that defunding the police is suddenly taking off like Cracker Jacks. There's like more support for it than ever, including in 2016, obviously, because the Trayvon murder uh, was very different. And yes, I called it a murder, but I, I know legally it's not what it was. Uh, public lynching is what I've heard called it, which I think is, is very helpful. So that's kind of what I'm researching right now is, you know, why then? Mm. Wh- what was the statement saying versus what people said it was saying? And why did that need to be rewritten to sort of serve the dominant interest? And then interestingly enough, um, the page disappears sometime at the end of that summer, maybe early fall. And you can't find it anymore except in the Wayback Machine, because now there's just like an About Us page that took its place. So uh, interesting, too, because it kind of seemed to work mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. So that's my that's my current project. The criticism work. Yeah, right. The, the, the backlash, for whatever reason, was strong enough to make them adjust their strategy, which, again, it's you can't really say the backlash did it. But um, you got to imagine that's not an accident, the timing. Right, right. But yeah, I mean, we yeah, but, but I mean, it's it's all it's we're all a, t- a Twitter pated down here about the the Juneteenth party that even though it's February, you know, the students are still kind of talking about it because they love to talk about cancel culture. I mean, they think it's like the worst thing that's ever happened. It's pretty funny. Well, we're going to dive into all things about cancel culture, but um, we're going to kind of use this story to frame it, mm-hmm. you know, because I think it's it's kind of. It's a pretty interesting story. And uh, before we get into that, I think that you're going to want to hear some more details about what happened. Okay, on July 7, 2022, Jeff Kerway, the supervisor in charge, told his subordinate, Jared Jones, and two other firefighters that he wanted to take the fire truck to a party, a private party in their district. They're all dressed in uniform, and he told them to go, and they all went to this private party. Now, this party was at a very wealth in a very wealthy part of Rochester at a mansion and when they got there they noticed that the theme of the party was a Juneteenth party now Juneteenth is for if you don't know it is an acknowledgement it's kind of, it's a holiday around when uh the slaves were when all of the slaves in the country were actually freed because in Texas they, they you know they, they didn't have media and they just kind of hid from the slaves in Texas that Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation. So there was many years where the slaves in Texas were actually free, but they didn't know about it. So Juneteenth is when everybody knew that they had been freed. And so that is the holiday. And so this is weeks later, this wealthy white couple is having a Juneteenth themed party. Now, the party was given by Nicholas Nisiosa and his wife, Mary. Nisiosa is a dentist, and he worked for the Amherst hockey team, which is a like a lower level professional hockey team in Rochester. He was also on the board of a local hospital, and she was on the board of a historical society. So they're pretty prominent citizens in Rochester. Jones at the party, he saw buckets of fried chicken, bottles of cognac, Juneteenth commemorative cups were given out as party favors. The party itself, in addition to being Juneteenth themed was overtly political. There were giant cutouts of Trump. There were cutouts of like paper cutouts of Democratic elected officials. They had a burlesque dancer dressed as a particular Democratic legislature, and she was suggestively dancing and calling herself by the name of this legislator. 
and the party attendants are yelling at her to show us your tits. Okay, so the theme of the this party is both racist, political, and misogynistic. And this is a problem because there are codes of conduct for firefighters, whether they're on or off duty. Jones also said that he recognized a high-ranking member of the police department. So there's concerns over who exactly was at this party. Mary, the wife and the hostess, she kept asking Jones if he wanted to take fried chicken home with him, which he declined. Uh, You know, I think he was offended, potentially. And I think he also stated he was afraid that it had been tampered with. Now, this story has two main issues. One is legal and the other is not legal. So the legal issues, the main issue here is going to be employment discrimination, specifically creating a hostile work environment. So Jones is black. He's a 14-year veteran of the, of the fire department, and he filed a civil suit for hostile work environment due to race under New York's human rights law for emotional distress. It's a civil suit. So all civil suits seek monetary damages. The problem for the, for the city is that the supervisor, who is white, asked him, really kind of told him to go to this party took the work vehicle during work hours. It's a private party, which is something that they say that they do, like they'll go kind of for community outreach. But, you know, this isn't just a regular party. This is this is an allegedly racist theme. And here this white supervisor is bringing a black employee to socialize with guests who chose to attend this party. They saw the theme. They didn't leave. And Jones was uncomfortable. The next day, he filed a complaint with the battalion chief. Nothing was done by that supervisor. Nothing was done by Fire Chief Hernandez or any other member of the fire department. And then Jones was scheduled to work again the very next day with the same supervisor, or four four days later with the same supervisor. And so he didn't want to do that. He felt very upset about it. And he went on leave for emotional distress and because he feared retaliation for complaining about this. And he claims he's been pressured by members of the fire department and other elected officials to keep silent about this issue. Now, those are the legal issues, and that's going to be fleshed out in depositions and through the civil suit. Then there's this whole other non-legal part of the story. So that once the lawsuit was filed, the press, the local press reported on the story, and there was swift condemnation. This is a prominent couple that was hosting this party. The couple admitted that their their roles, that they hosted it, and then there were consequences. The dentist was removed from his position as a the professional dentist of the Amherst hockey team. He was removed from his board position at a local hospital. And the wife was removed from her board position at the Historical Society because people came out and said, why are these people, why are you to these organizations, why are you supporting these people who would have this kind of party? So the host, the party host, they hired a lawyer out of Buffalo, another upstate New York City, western New York City. And this guy holds one of the worst press conferences in history in an attempt to clear their names and restore their reputations. And I'll play a clip of that. The purchase of the Juneteenth things. They didn't bring them in. They put them up. No one thought about it as anything other than, okay, we're making fun of all of these liberal causes. But not Juneteenth in the sense that there was nothing said to desecrate that holiday, or to desecrate the chicken, or to desecrate the uh, the cognac. Everybody felt it was appropriate to basically disown these people. The individuals at the party that I talked to, 
they are all afraid of their names coming out. At this press conference, which went viral, the attorney challenged the reporters there to find evidence that his clients are racist. And then in the same press conference, pipes up and admits that she has a racist parody account on Twitter. Well, I'm here to defend myself for false claims of racism. But before I do that, in full disclosure, um, I do have a Twitter parody account that operates under a veil of a persona. And I have made blatantly racist comments under that persona. Culture of Twitter operates that way, and it's part of its charm. I don't want to say it's charm, but it's, it gives you a, a, an opportunity to be someone that you're not in terms of a persona. One of the tweets is a photo of a piggy bank of a black man's head, which she admits that she keeps in her home. And these people makes this big claim in this press conference that this couple are victims of cancel culture. We were tried and convicted on social media and a false narrative was created. Organizations like Highland Hospital and Rochester Americans who had been associated with from 14 to 32 years, respectively, immediately distanced themselves. As far as my office, many patients started calling, requesting their records be sent to a different office. So before all this started, my Google Google rating was a perfect five. It's probably down to two now. A supportive friend sent me a text last week, and it just was one line, and it said, cancel culture can be cruel. And it was a simple statement, and it was... It is cruel. I I knew it was cruel. I just never thought it would happen to to my family. Now, Lee, what do you think? You know, is this cancel culture? Well, um, yeah, and there's a couple of interesting things. So I watched the press conference where they gave this speech, and one of the things, and this is a phrase we hear a lot, uh, was that they've been uh, convicted in the court of public opinion. Mm -hmm. Right? And so... I also think it's interesting that it isn't just that they're victims. It's also like somehow there's been an action to like cancel culture is somehow an action. And I think this gets back to our free speech counter speech episode is that the, whether or not you call it cancel culture or not, I think, I think it is, I think it is, or it's not, it kind of depends on what you mean by that. And if what you mean is, if what you mean by cancel culture, is this a social is this a the use of social technologies and basically the, the printing press i mean for lack of a better word right because that's what that's what this is it's the evolution of the democratization of the ability to read and write in order to exert public pressure uh for the social good then yeah <laughs> i mean that's exactly what it is just like boycotts right just like uh when we used to put people in stocks in the public square and throw tomatoes at them i mean these are all different iterations of using public space and different kinds of public pressure to essentially hold people accountable for their actions. But mostly when people say cancel culture, what they mean is like mob, and you'll see these kinds of phrases in the press conference, right? Mob mentality, people who don't know the real story, jumping on a bandwagon and uh, somehow like somehow their speech does material damage, right? So in this case, I think one of the big complaints is that uh, the, the uh, he was a dentist, right? He's one of a the, dentist. The, the, yeah, the host and his Google rating for his practice was five stars before the event. And then once, quote unquote, cancel culture got a hold of it, now it's down to two stars and people are boycotting his practice. So 
normally I think that's what people mean by cancel culture is they mean sort of this jump on the bandwagon to ruin someone's life before you know all of the facts or um, before you, you know, you've given people a chance to apologize or correct for their behavior. Uh, but even if that's your definition, I still don't think this is cancel culture because to me, Okay, so I'll say this. I do think there is some legitimacy to the term cancel culture in very specific situations where what we are talking about is, in fact, a quick and fast, uninformed mass movement to shame or criticize or blame a situation where you don't actually have the right amount of evidence or the evidence that you do have has been planted. So, for example, um, for me, right when Kevin Hart was about to host the Oscars in uh, 2016. I think it was 2017. I can't remember. And then people brought up these tweets from 2008, right? So almost a full 10 years earlier when Hart was a very different kind of comedian doing very different kinds of work under different kinds of pressure, right? From the industry uh, that were, you know, like creepy gendered. They said things about like, oh, if my son were gay, I'd smash my daughter's dollhouse over his head. They were things like that. So, you know, super problematic, not okay. Uh, but Hart, you know, apologized. I mean, I think he did all of the, I think he did the best that anyone could ask. And, and, and so the fact that he still was not able to host, like he was removed from the host of the Oscars, that is about the close of an example to legitimate cancel culture, the way that I think people mean the term as I can come up with, because in that case, uh, Hart was not able to revise his previous statements. He was not given the opportunity to apologize. Um, he was still punished, even though, on my view, right, he 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 did everything he he needed to do and set a good example for how these situations ought to be handled. To me, he should have still been able to host the Oscars. Well, okay, so he, I mean, he was able to apologize because he, you know, has a platform, and so, but his apology wasn't. I mean, isn't 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 it that more that his apology? Maybe there wasn't an apology that was possible to be good enough for the moneyed interests to risk having him associated with the Oscars or what, you know, what, you know, they decided or advertises they didn't, they didn't want to be part of that controversy. Right. But that, but that is, but that is ultimately how cancel cult culture exercises again, in very narrow cases, like I, I think largely it's used to silence legit criticism. Like in this case, cancel culture was a label given to the legitimate criticism of behavior that we as a society no longer find acceptable. So in this case, right, calling to cancel culture, I don't think works. But the but, but if you're going to ask if something is cancel culture, first you have to say like, what actually is it? Mm -hmm. And I think if we want to come up with a definition you know, one way to handle this is just to be like, oh, there is no cancel culture. Um, you know, this is just this is just boycotts. This, this is just like we've been doing this our whole lives. But another way is to say, actually, there is such a thing as cancel culture that is a new emergence of social media, except it's so rare that you have to find a, a, at least one example of it. And mm -hmm. to me, it's because people get so on board with criticizing heart that they exert such pressure that now, just like you said, there is no way for Hart to apologize enough. So he winds up having to take the consequences, not because of his current behavior, which actually should have, which in any other context, right, would have would have probably been enough to to course correct, but because of the moneyed interests 
that, you know, that's why culture cancel culture, I think is unique to just like boycotting because you now have the addition of, well, we don't want to be involved in this controversy. So even though Hart did everything that needed to be done, we're still out. Yeah. And, th- and that's where culture, cancel culture can be a problem because, again, it comes back to money. It comes back to the fact the way that, that, that the large amounts of corporate interests make all of this an issue. But again, in this case, that's not what we're talking about. But that's one. So it's cancel culture for one thing. Like it, Kevin Hart is not canceled as well, and th- right. as an entertainer. I mean, he still works. He has movies. He does all of those things. So it's like it was a cancel. It's not so cancel culture. Just is such a misnomer because it's like he lost out on on a, on one opportunity that there wasn't enough time and space for people to assess whether or not he, this is a change. Right. And I, and I think that's an important point to make is that there's also a difference between like people now call it being canceled and that's a problem. Like that shift is super problematic because it, it again, it comes back to the speech issue. Um, it's really not. Yeah. Okay. So there's a, there, there might be a cancel culture, which is mob mentality, which again, I've managed to come up with all of one example that as you pointed out, isn't even really that good. Uh, that to me, I think is a red herring argument. There is cancel, like the cancel speech, which seems far less influential, which is essentially public criticism for people's behavior that ought to result in consequences. And then there's quote unquote being canceled, which then to me way jumps the line because it turns me saying something into me having a direct action, uh, which is a problem because it's like fear mongering, right? Because nothing I can say, no, no amount of people I can rally to the cause can get someone canceled. And like you said, as in like no longer working in the industry, can't get a job, da, 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 da. But, but by acting as if that's the inevitable consequence of the behavior, like for example, he can still have a dentist practice. Nobody shut down his dental practice. Nobody walked in and, and took away his license, right? It's just people who don't agree with his personal behavior have opted not to, he isn't canceled, but, but that's what you'll hear that he has been canceled because it ups the stakes of something where the stakes actually are relatively low. Um, and, and, you know, and again, we want to remember, like, this is a term that comes from the right, who, by the way, are <laughs> way bigger perpetrators of cancel culture than people that are running my circles. But they label it as if it's a leftist thing, you know, snowflakes label these things. It's cancel culture. Yeah. Right. I mean, really, doesn't it go back to to blacklisting? Like there really was blacklisting back in back in the day. There were, you know, Hollywood people that were blacklisted they were not they were not hired and that is a in order to be blacklisted you have to have the coordinated cooperation of the people in power right and they have to agree not to hire someone versus the ground up response to behavior that the public doesn't doesn't support and they and that that's the difference between you know a boycott and a and being blacklisted and they're trying to this uh, they're trying to make what is essentially you know the public just using their their power by saying i don't want to i'm i don't want to put money towards this you know I, or i want to speak out against it and criticize it they want to act like that has the same by calling it canceled they want to act like that has the same effect and that's the same power as when the 
you know, when the moneyed people really organize to shut out speech. And it's it's not they're conflating the two things and it's not the same. Right. And and I, you know, especially like from the legal perspective, I find the phrase, which again was used in the press conference following up to this situation. Uh, and again, so there's two, there's two things I want to mention about the press conference. One is this phrase, uh, you know, we were found guilty in a court of public opinion before we even had it da 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 da. It's like that, that phrase is so misleading because it, these things aren't like being found guilty and sentenced to incarceration is such a different move than having some people not not come to your dental practice and put negative reviews on Yelp and and unfortunately right and and moneyed interests right corporate white supremacy um, has control over who gets punished legally right they have the actual ability to cancel like police murdering police suffocating people to death with their boot on people's necks like that's actually being canceled public lynchings you know um, lynch mobs that's canceling someone. The only thing you have in response to that is the ability to rally some public opinion to hold people accountable. So like making those things commensurate is obviously a rhetorical strategy to protect moneyed interest. And the, the other thing I just want to mention real quick about the press conference is over and over again, one of the things I kept hearing because this this um she had like this other Twitter that they discovered that was like super racist. I mean, it was like actually legitimate racial satire. Um, you know, mammy memes kind of Twitter. And that to me is pretty good evidence of intent with the Juneteenth party. Right. Right. So in the press conference, people went, you know, when, when they kept trying to defend, well, this wasn't actually what you're saying it is. People kept going, but what about your tweet? What about your tweets? What about your Twitter? And she kept saying, I've already explained that. I don't want to talk about that anymore. And so again, going back to the idea that cancel culture, if it does exist, has to be sort of a quick mob attack on a wrongdoing without information or the opportunity for the public expression of regret, change, all that stuff. Even if you want to say that that's the definition, that's not what happened. <laughs> like it's not even, right? So even if you want to say there's such a thing as cancel culture and it does have, there's a reason why we might want to keep the term for, for very specific situations. You don't have, first of all, you have the facts. You have the facts you need to judge this situation. And number two, you have them absolutely refusing to acknowledge any wrongdoing, even if it was accidental. Even if they said, oh my gosh, we played into these racist tropes um, associated with Juneteenth. We, we sort of um, collapsed criticism of the Democrats into black exploitation. I mean, they, they don't even have to say they did it on purpose to at least admit they did something wrong and they were not having any of it. I'm not a racist person. I grew up in East Cleveland very diverse community, and I would doubt or I challenge you that you would find anybody in the community that would tell you that I am. We are not racist. When you find anyone who knows us, interacted with us, or worked with us to tell you that, you wouldn't find it. So again, I, I don't see where there's any legitimate claim from them that what happened to them was cancel culture. Right. And the whole thing is, is again, just again, about their reputation, because they, the lawsuit is against public officials right? for this guy being brought to a party by a supervisor during work hours. They're not being sued personally for employment discrimination. They're not his employer. No, literally nothing legally is happening to them at all. So, and again, it's all about money yeah. damages that would be owed to this employee. They're not going to, those money damages come out of 
you know, the public coffer, they don't come out of the Nisiosa's bank accounts. So it's purely just, you know, we're embarrassed and we're facing some some backlash and maybe we're losing some money because, you know, people don't support our racism. Well, and if you think about it, I mean, one of the things that's happened over the like, that you've seen happen more and more is this sort of like far right, not even I don't know if it's far right. It's like right. It's like conservative backlash to, um, you know, gay marriage, things like that, where, well, I'm a private individual. My beliefs are my beliefs. It's my company. I get to do what I want. And so the, the example I think a lot of people use is uh, the, the wedding. Remember when there was like a bakery? that yeah. refused to make wedding cakes for gay couples, right? Which is very different than the woman who refused to issue the marriage license as a state official, right? Although, you know, Florida's Florida's pretty soon going to probably probably be able to 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 actually make private interests of the conservatives like their public interests. But, you know, generally speaking there that was like a, a clear differential. So, to me, the the logical inverse of that is like, okay, you refusing if, if you refusing to make a cake for a gay couple isn't cancel culture, then I don't see how me refusing to go to a dentist that I perceive as racist is cancel culture. So you you kind of got a, no pun intended, have your cake. You can't have your cake and eat it too in this situation. If they're going to claim insulation through the, through the invocation of private property and private enterprise, then in this case, they don't have a leg to stand on. And so it's, it's the, it's the, it's the selective deployment of accountability that sort of gives this away as as a smokescreen to me. Well, they get their cake and eat it, too, because they have the media that's being complicit in all of this, in the way they discuss it, in the way they report on it. Yeah, I was I was shocked how complicit that interview felt to me. And, and not even like there's a far right, like it wasn't even like, oh, this was Fox and they had some, this wasn't Newsmax reaching out to me, right? This was like, an ABC syndicate. But then I forget, like ABC is now owned by Sinclair Media Group, which is a, right, they have, they have a strong conservative interest and they've consolidated a ton of media. But that reporter, you know, seemed, seemed, seemed to treat this as a relatively, they didn't seem to be for or against the situation. They seemed to be acting like a journalist, but the questions just seemed to come from a place that just already presumed cancel culture was bad. Mm-hmm. And I found that very strange. Yeah. So there seems to be a point of view. Right. That because this guy had said, we're, yeah, we're guilty of cancel culture. A, it must be true. And B, cancel culture is definitely bad. And also like people know what it is. I mean, I find, you know, whenever I ask my students to, hey, define it, if you're going to keep talking about it, like I had a hundred students last semester. And when we had, when they had to do their little projects, I mean, I think like half of them chose cancel culture. Really? That's, that shows just how effective this constant, um, I guess, reporting on, on and or just like calling everything cancel culture. They're so coordinated. It's really effective. Yeah. I mean, this, this is the problem with the far right inventing terminology because, it, you know, since they got to it first, they own the deployment of it. You know, if we'd, if we'd latched onto this terminology earlier, we might be able to define it. Like, do you remember that Gillette sensitive skin ad? I have no idea what the ad, what, what is about what the ad's about. I don't remember the ad. There was like this ad for Gillette razors and, and, and it was like, I guess the man was like an, a stay at home dad or something. And there was this huge backlash against it. I remember it because I saw a tweet that someone had written that said, huh, 
I guess Gillette's not for sensitive skin. And I was laughing really hard because, you know, this idea that we're the sensitive ones is very funny because they're, they're a hairpin trigger about all kinds of like morality issues. Oh, that was the problem. The problem was that he was a stay at home dad. It was like a, it was like an effect. It was like what they perceived as like Gillette selling out to woke culture by featuring like a stay at home dad doing like the laundry and like using his Gillette, uh. using his Gillette shaver. I don't remember exactly what it was, but he was doing like emasculating things, quote unquote, emasculating things in the advertisement. Like he might have been using his razor to shave his armpits to go swimming or something like that. It was something really innocuous that got picked up and there was a huge huge criticism of it as, yeah, it's like men can't be men anymore, all this stuff. And I just, I remember thinking, I don't remember anybody like on the left labeling that cancel culture. No. Because, you know, that term was coined and, and that, and like, like wokeness is the same move. I mean, being woke, staying woke, getting woke right, as a verb, that was definitely coined by, uh, you know, black popular culture. I mean, I, I can remember like there was a childish Gambino song about it. I definitely like hit its zenith with um with get out, right? But that was definitely like a, a ground up kind of terminology that was like it was about a verb though. It was about, you know, getting your eyes. I mean, it, it, it very familiar terms. Open your eyes, you know, stay vigilant, mm-hmm. things like that. And the right, especially oh especially DeSantis, has turned it into a, a noun, right? All you know, or an adjective, right? Woke woke culture. We got cancel culture. We got woke culture. We got wokeness. The woke, I think he said the other day, we're not going to give, I mean, the Florida stop woke. Act. Yeah. Or we're not you know? going to give into the woke. He's turned it into, le- they've turned it into legislation. Yeah. The woke majority. It's illegal. Yeah. Thing. I mean, they, and now wokeness is bad, even though I never heard anybody who I would consider quote unquote woke call themselves woke. So what's hilarious is the right has invented a term. Well, define woke. Define woke. Uh, someone who fights for social justice issues is what is what theoretically get get woke always meant that right. Like, don't be complicit with cops. Don't pretend like the cops are there to help you. Is a really good example of like what staying woke would mean. So even though I might be tempted to call the police for my you know narrow interests, like uh, there's a there's a, a weird car across the street. Staying woke means remembering that the police are complicit with mass murder of black people, right? So that's like a like a really like simple example of it. You have but- a friend, you have a friend who's having a serious mental health crisis and you try to deal with it without calling the police because you're concerned they may not handle it well. Yeah, or like um do you know don't believe the lie that Obama, I mean this I, this isn't me. This is Glenn Florida of the Black Agenda report. Um it's like don't believe the lie that Obama is a friend of of black America, right? He's, you know, like, yes, he is the first black president. Yes, he might be better than some other options. And I remember the night before the vote, Ford said, yes, go out tonight and vote. And then tomorrow, get right back to fighting empire. So it's like, it's this idea that don't like, don't fall for, I mean, don't fall. Yeah. Don't fall for the, the cell that because Kamala Harris is now vice president, that, 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 that that must mean things are improving. I mean, it's all these ideas about just staying vigilant. I mean, that's kind of like how I interpret it. So, but they don't call us. And aware. And aware. Right. They don't call us the vigilant majority, right? DeSantis isn't going, oh, we're going to fight vigilance culture. We're going to fight the vigilant majority when that's really all that term means. And again, I don't know anybody fighting for social justice who walks around like, oh, I was woke today. I'm so woke. Right. But, but But now that they've taken the term and labeled the behavior in a pejorative way, now that behavior, any demonstration of that behavior is considered bad. 
And that to me is sucks because it came from such a legitimate place. And, and it is good advice. I mean, it's incredibly good advice to stay vigilant, sleep with one eye open. I mean, we, we use these phrases all the time. I, I don't know why being woke is any different than any of these other phrases. And yet, it, again, it's that controlled narrative defining the term in a specific way and defining it so often and so frequently that it seeps into public consciousness so that anytime it gets used, it only has this like negative connotation. I mean, it's the whole idea of what's they've been very successful in areas in, you know, in in the red areas, you know, in, in the areas that consistently vote red, even though it's against their interests uh, as constituents, they continue to vote red because they have they now believe that Democrats are bad. Yeah. And so it's taking the same ideas that that go along with being vigilant, any any it just kind of folding in all of those type of social justice ideas and folding that into bad. Yeah, I mean, my, my my philosophy is that as soon as a word, like we call it we call it getting sedimented. And what we mean by that is like as soon as cancel culture becomes so it becomes self-evident as in I don't have to think about whether something's cancel culture, I just sort of know it when I see it then you've got a problem, right? Then the word has, whatever, then the word has been co-opted. So to me, people like to double down on labels that seem trendy. But to me, my impulse is always the opposite. Like when words become trendy, they have given up the ghost. I mean, and and that's why you always see these new terms emerging. I just think the difference now is that, you know, in the 80s and 90s, um, the right used to fight them, right? They used to try to control. I mean, I remember when... uh, (laughs) There was like a movement in France, uh, Sarkozy, right, to to keep the word hashtag from being used as a way to control French language. I mean, you saw similar things with the right, like mm. like Newt Gingrich's contract for America. I mean, trying to sort of certain words they didn't want put into circulation. Um, but of course, it doesn't work because part of part of trendiness, part of youth culture, is to recreate new language, and they do it over and over and over again. Um, so now I think the tactic is shifting and they're actually taking the term and making it work for them, which is very, very clever. I wish I knew who is figuring all of this stuff out. You know, who's in the background? <laughs> who's in the background? That's your job, Lee. I'll never forget the day that I read this book. I wish I could remember the name of it. That was an investigative journalist who had all of this evidence, very convincing evidence that basically Spiro Agnew, right, of the Nixon administration, you know, and I think at the time he like Donald Rumsfeld might have been like really early on in his career in the mix, right? The the architect of the Iraqi war, Iraqi invasion. Um, they invented prisoners like POW. They invented it as a concept, as a slogan. They used corp. They used um, government funding to fund movies like Rambo about these like going into Vietnam and rescuing these these lost. And the reason they did it. There, there actually is not a lot of evidence that there are these massive amounts of unmarked graves and left behind soldiers in Vietnam. It, it, the evidence isn't there, but they did it to prevent the commitment that the U.S. government had made to Vietnam to help with reconstruction after the war. Because, right, if we have these soldiers that are like missing in action that, that haven't been returned to us, we don't have an obligation to go in and help fix. Mm-hmm. Like, Because that was part of the condition of some of the, you know, the guerrilla Vietnamese troops assisting the U.S. was that when, when all this was over, they, we were going to get help rebuilding. 
So to prevent that, they invent this whole discourse. I mean, and that literally happened. That was not organic. That was a bunch of rich men in a room coming up with ways to get out of being accountable and then using their money to spread it like wildfire as if it was popular culture, as if it was a ground up movement, right? And and what's really sad is the suckers that still hand out these prisoner of war bracelets with the names of these people that are like being held like like, like the, the, there are people who still believe yeah that there are these like secret Viet, like war war camps in Vietnam where these people are being held and it's super scary because because it's all it's all fabricated i didn't i'm not saying that there aren't like some some examples of that but it's again it was turning it into a full blown campaign that there was something distinctly horrifying about this particular war's handling of its prisoners of war that's the part that's fabricated i'm not saying there weren't prisoners of war or mistreatment or anything like that but the idea was it, as if it were somehow worse than any other war where similar things would have happened it's all to keep us from having to help the interesting in the, in the 70s. i did not know that yeah and and I, and I think about that whenever I think about like who who saw wokeness and decided this is the term we're going to latch onto. And I don't mean it doesn't happen organically. Like I, I can I can imagine that there that the, just some like random person deployed uh, like wokeness as an insult long you know like bef- there, I don't think there you know I don't think it it's always created top down. But I do think you don't have just casual pejorative vocabulary like that, like snowflake or whatever. I don't think you have it take wildfire hold of what I would call like the mainstream imaginary, right? Kind of mm-hmm. like, like my students are a pretty good example. They're like not liberal or conservative. They're like on the fence, but their language is, 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 is always pushed in that direction because conservatives have more money to push it. That's the part that I think is coordinated um, is, is like, which words are we going to really? Well, they have media yeah. outlets, you know, I mean, they, they have dedicated media outlets that that push that stuff you know and then and like any counter media like this podcast (laughs) isn't creating language to push we're we're like analyzing you know what the heck's going on and trying to figure that stuff out so it's it just isn't uh there isn't an apparatus there isn't a counter apparatus and i i don't think there's any real motivation to create one i don't think you know i think i personally would like to get away from all that stuff yeah not create a counter to that. Sure. I can see that. And maybe that's not smart. Maybe that's not strategic. And maybe that's a problem. Um, well, I mean, part but of I it think, too is... I think you see that. Well, a, we don't fight the same way. Well, one of the one of the things that the culture wars accomplished, so you have this huge turn, especially in academia in the 60s and 70s, toward a close critique of language, right? That's like the move. We now think of it as just a thing we always did, but actually... Prior to the 1960s, that was not a popular thing. In right, that was not like the trend. Um, but you see that become in academia, we call it the linguistic term because like every field in the 60s and 70s started to pay attention to the labor that metaphors and language did. Uh, you get the strong critique in the 80s of that. I still think we hear resonate today. That's like, oh, like, like it's all semantics. I despise when people say that sentence to me because what it means is you you can call it a rose. You can call right, any a rose by any other name is still a rose, right? It's that kind of a thing. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and sometimes I wonder if that's actually complicit with the problem because this idea that we're going to backlash against a close interrogation of language. I mean, yeah, I don't think be woke or get woke or stay woke or wokeness. I don't think like deciding on that label is going to save, you know, it's not going to fix social justice inequities, but the, it's, but when we don't pay attention to it, we lose 
the fight rhetorically and then we lose the fight for the imaginary and that allows all kinds of shitty stuff to happen. So I don't know, I, I kind of go back and forth, but to me, to me, it's not about like, it's not about like policing people's language. It's about that exactly what I just said, which is we should all be a lot more concerned when language gets stuck. I mean, they're way better at this stuff to fund the police. You know, there's, there was all kinds of uh fight over that. Yeah. And in essence, those who were wedded to that phraseology lost. They lost the they lost the battle and they lost the war. And it's super yeah. frustrating. We lost a ton of momentum. And I think you can see, at least I feel it, you know, I mean, I'm this isn't I I didn't study it, but I feel like people are they lack motivation from it, with the Tyree Nichols killing. You know, it's not, I think they were really worried it was going to be another uh, George Floyd 2.0, and it has not borne out that way. And it has not borne out that way because Democratic politicians fucked up. Well, I also don't think the Democrats have any interest. They're too wedded. Yeah, they, they're, they, they don't have any interest. They don't have any understanding. No, I mean, I think they actually have a vested interest in maintaining the police. I don't think it's even lack of motivation. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. Like the yeah, police, I think you're right. No, I, I the police yeah. grew out of the clan, right? They 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 are designed. I just read this great book called Fire the Cops, um, by I want to say it's his last name is Williams. I can't remember his first name. Um, and and he talks about like yeah, the police were invented to protect wealth interests. I mean, that's their only. He calls them the managerial class. Um, and and they've been looped in with all of these essential frontline workers, the, the working class, right? They've been work. They've been looped in as a working class group for strategic reasons, but that's not what they are. They're not the, they're not the elites and they're not the working class. They are the, the middle managers of the elites, right. To protect them from working class uprisings. I mean, right. They're henchmen is what they are. And just the, just the, so the Democrats, the Democrats are wealthy, right. So it's like at the end of the day, um, their interest in maintaining wealth and privilege is always going to beat any kind of what you know genuine commitment to social justice and the, and the and they know that they know that the police are the police don't protect against crime right the police the, you know this the police allow certain certain crimes to be criminalized and certain things to be legitimized oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah we police we police the things that have very little impact on society and we let go i mean you can listen to the whole Alec Karakatsanis episode on that i mean what we <laughs> Yeah, the Karakatsanis episode is perfect on this. What we what we don't police, all the financial crimes that go rampant. And, you know, Democrats and Republicans alike yeah. are guilty of those financial crimes that have huge impact. The wage theft is unbelievable. Yeah. And we don't prosecute any of that nope. stuff. It just let it go. It's not it's not a thing. So, yeah, yeah. It's really hard to know how to to build that momentum. Well, I also, I just think it's a stupid. Well, I will say one thing is it's we spend way too much time debating whether or not we should focus on language. Look, follow the language, follow the money, always both things, right? Follow cancel culture. Where did it come from? Why are we using it? Why are you using it? Should it be used? What does it mean? I mean, always inter. I mean, talk about staying woke, right? Think about the terms that you spread and reinforce and. Also follow the money. I mean, do both, right? Money and words are the currencies of power and they're also the currencies of resistance. You have to have both. So it's like, instead of sitting around 
and debating whether or not language matters. I mean, just assume it does and also assume that money matters as well. Violence and force matter as well, right? It all matters. There's no reason to like have a debate about which one we ought to focus on. Right. And when we don't know how much money is affecting somebody, you need to stay vigilant and not trust that just because they're there and they might look a certain way and they might check some boxes so you think yeah. that you can trust that they're going to be working for your interests. Yeah. Right. Stay woke. Yep. Stay woke, everybody. <laughs> All right. Let's circle back. Let's circle back here on Arnesiosis. You know, the government never stopped their speech at, in any way at all. It's just a misnomer. The government had nothing to do with their speech. They're facing social and private professional consequences for their racist behavior. Calling it cancel culture is a diversion from the real accountability that they're facing. So, you know, they're, they had their speech, they had their party, and they have consequences for their free speech, okay? That's the way it goes. You want to be racist? You want to have a party? Maybe don't let the fire department come and uh, use it to create a hostile work environment for their employee. Yeah, I mean, that I think. And one of the things I said to the students were, are you like back in August, right after this had happened? And I said, are you, tell me, did you put as much effort into being mad about Daniel Prude being killed as you did into being pissed that cancel culture went after these people? I was like, because if you didn't, something is really, really wrong. And last, and yesterday, a vigilant, a, a vigil was held for Tyree Nichols in the Daniel Prude Square. Right. Of Rochester. And it's just like, I can't, I mean, this, like, I can't hear with, with, with the layering of the irony. I know. And that's a real, it's always a really good question to ask. Like, okay, fine. You're really upset about what happened to that. Were you as upset about that person with mental health issues being murdered by co the cops that were supposed to protect him? I and mean, that's a really good metric of whether you ought to be in, in their boat. And I just can't get there, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for coming on, Lee. I love your perspective. I'm so glad to have you back. Hmm. We've missed you. This episode is written and produced by me, Mary Whiteside. Mixing and mastering by Joe Thompson. Social media by Jen Nicholson. You can always find the podcast on Twitter at CourtPod, or you can drop an email at me at displeasethecourt at gmail.com. Please rate and review the show. It helps others find the program. Our theme music is Poor Man's Pain by Danielle Ponder. She's a former public defender. Her song is about Willie Simmons, a black man who was sentenced to life in prison in 1992 for stealing $9. He is still there. You can check out the show notes to learn more. Thank you. Had to cry, paid more than